Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. Finishing up the chapter, starting with verse 21. And the last time the message was titled, Clearing a Rough Path. So for those of you that weren't here, definitely get the message for free off the website. Uh, What a phenomenal teaching on, because of of the Bible, on John the Baptist. What a, a cool and dynamic character he was. And an incredible ministry. We're going to talk more about John the Baptist as we go through Luke. So we're starting to, with uh, last Sunday and this Sunday, we're starting to really, for those, and and people can say, listen, I'm I'm a Christian denomination, and I don't really understand baptism. You know, I've been a Christian for many years. Baptism is very deep. It has a lot of layers to it. You know, today, the message is titled, Christ's Inaugural Baptism. So we're going to talk a lot about baptism, what it means, what it looks like. We're going to take it in six parts. And I'm going to take it in chronological order because in this chapter is the genealogy, which I'll go through quickly. Um, It's just a bunch of names, and it just proves who Jesus Christ is and the line that he came in. So we're going to go through that chronological order. Uh, We're also going to see the difference between me using the name Jesus and then me using the name Christ. Jesus was his name, like Yeshua, depending on what language you're saying it in, and Christ, Christos, Mashiach in the Hebrew, is his office. He's the Christ, right? So to some, Jesus Christ, Christ wasn't his last name. Christ is his title. Uh, Just like Jesus as God the Son holds many titles. He's the Lagos, he's the Lion, he's the Lamb, he fulfills so many roles that only God can. So you start to see the deity of Christ as well. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to talk about, or the next time we come together in Luke, I already started studying it. I get so excited. I'm like, I can't wait to teach this. It's going to be the temptation of Christ, right? When he went out into the wilderness and he was tempted, he fasted for 40 days. Man, there is so much. There's maybe 13 verses, but what a punch it packs. And you'll see how what he did was for our benefit, how he identified with us and how he gives us the strength to fight temptation. So, you know, this is we're, we're laying the groundwork as we see in the Gospels. But once we really get into deep into these Gospels, it's going to blow your doors off. Um, I'm, I studied, I taught Luke 12 years ago, and I'm like, I'm doing it again. And I'm thinking, I don't even remember teaching that. Like, it's the living word. God gives you information every time you look into the scripture. That's why it's so important for us to read our Bibles, not because we're made to, but because it's just so life-giving, especially in the world we see today. You know, you could look on cable news, look on the evening news. Isn't it, is there ever any good news? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Are they against teaching good news? I don't know, but um, come back in the Bible, we start to see the message of true hope, not what the world gives. So jumping in verse 23, and then I'm going to come back to 21. It says, now look at the wording in this. It says, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. That's important. Being as was supposed, that's important too, the son of Joseph. So Mary is 
given this task by the angel. He tells her what God is going to do. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus is God the Son takes the human form in her womb. And, you know, Joseph has nothing to do with it. It's, uh, it's you know, it's what God did. And but Joseph marries her. And, you know, in Jewish custom, it was a big deal to be a stepdad. It was a bigger deal than it is in American culture. So Joseph um, legally takes, you know, fatherhood of the child that she's carrying. Right. Who turns out to be Jesus Christ. So you see these bloodlines, right, these these genealogies. And it says, as was supposed the son of Joseph. So Joseph is the adoptive father. Now, through this, we can see really Mary's line. But again, when the, in that culture, the wife's parents would sort of adopt the husband, right? It just was a great cultural thing because you just see the closeness. Like today, it's like, all right, that's my stepbrother or my half-brother, when you look at the times back then, there was a much more closeness. They didn't let biology separate them. They're like, I, I want you to be in my family. So this really helps us to, especially when people attack the Bible, when you really understand the background, you can really defend your faith and explain why these things are true. So let's go through it. The son of Heli, the son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, Jana, Joseph, Mattathiah. You're going to see some of these names familiar. Amos, Nahum, Esli, Nagai, Math, Mattathiah, Simei, Joseph, Judah, verse 27, Joannas, Risa, Zerubbabel, Shealtiel, Neri, 28, Melchi, Adai, Kosum, Elmadam, Er, Joe's, I'm thinking Jose, it's a lot of friends. Okay, it's, it was Joe's, um, the son of Eliezer, uh, Joram, Methat, Levi, son of Simeon, Judah, Joseph, Jonan, Eliakim, uh, verse 31, Melia, Menon, Mattatha, Nathan, David. Now we start to look at the, for some of you, like, oh, I'm, I got this now. I'm seeing the royal line of right of of the israelites 32 jesse obed boaz that rings a bell salmon not salmon but salmon uh nashan aminadab ram hezron perez judah jacob isaac abraham more familiar names the son of terah the sons of nahor serig ru peleg eber shelah son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad. Now we see the original line before the flood of the people who lived a long time before the environment was changed. Um, Shem, Noah, Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, Mahalalel, Canaan, Enos, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, Adam was not of the substance of God. God is God. But God created people and he adopts them into his family. He, he loves people. He created us and, you know, he, he loves us, right? And he gives us free will and we choose whether we're going to love him back or not. So there's a lot in here. So one out of six is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, Matthew's gospel, I'm going to reference Matthew. I've taught Matthew before. I'm not going to go through Matthew. But if you know the Bible, you know there's a genealogy in Matthew 2. Matthew, not two, but also. 
And what is the difference? Matthew's gospel appears to be the legal line through Joseph as the adoptive father, where Luke is the biological line through Mary and her father, Heli. Okay? Um, Yes. So, right. So Luke... Yeah, so let me continue on. Matthew goes back to Abraham, which would have expressed the legal, right, and the prophetic proof of the Messiah, while Luke goes all the way back to Adam. So Jesus had to come in the line of Adam, biologically, uh, because Adam is the one who brought the line of sin into the human race. So this is there's just a lot of legalities here with God. You know, God created physics. He created gravity. And... You know, you can deny that gravity exists, but if you jump off something that's very high, you'll find it very quickly that these are laws of physics that have to be obeyed. Otherwise, we're it's to our own peril. So when sin entered the world, right, God had to send his son, God the son, into the line of man to save man. Again, there's a legality there, just like the laws of physics. Everything has to make sense. Matthew 1.11, Joseph is from Jeconiah, one of King Josiah's sons, uh, but Josiah was a great king, but his sons were well, not so great, and they did a lot of evil, so God did not allow Jeconiah's line to hold the kings anymore, so the Messiah couldn't come through that line. Jeremiah 22:24 through 30 tells us, however, in Mary's line, the curse is circumvented through another of David's sons, Nathan, as opposed to Solomon in Matthew. So does God know what he's doing? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I haven't read that much of the Bible. Um, but see, I guess what I'm trying to show you is, and I'm that type of person. I'm the prove it to me. I'm the, I'll debate an atheist and I'll show him why these things are true. It's not a fairy tale. There's a lot of intricacies in here that a lot of Christians don't even know about. So God will make it happen and his promises will come to pass against all odds. When I was at Rutgers, I took a course called uh, Statistical Methods and Probabilities, which I love that course. I mean, gee, I haven't been in college for 30 years, but I still remember the course, and I still remember what a statistical improbability is. It's all mathematics. You can't fudge with ma- mathematics. We talked about electricity last Sunday and um, engineering, but it's the same thing with mathematics. It either is or it isn't. And if you don't follow the laws of mathematics, you do it to your own peril. So... God makes these things happen that couldn't happen on their own. Amen? Now, I'll go through this quickly. There's a few interesting points, and then we'll go go through the other points rather rapidly. But I want to get this genealogy um, because a lot of people skip genealogy. So I do want to kind of talk to you about why this is so important. Right? In Matthew 1.3, Tamar, very unusual uh, you know, the people in the line and God's like, listen, you got to do this. This is the right way to do it. And just like human nature, prone to sin, they did what they wanted to do. Uh, Tamar presents herself as a prostitute. Very strange to get her father-in-law Judah to impregnate her, right? She had a disguise, a veil, whatever, uh, to bring forth Perez and Zerah, not to mention Judah's fault, who secretly went to a so-called prostitute, not knowing it was his daughter-in-law. Luke 3.32 and Matthew 1.5, Rahab marries Salmon. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute, but 
in Joshua 6, she saves the Israelite spies when they were spying out the land. So she turns good. Uh, Luke 3.32 and Matthew 1.5, Ruth marries Boaz. Ruth was a Gentile Moabitess, but she converted to Judaism, or she, she changed her faith into all these multiple gods, into believing the one true God. I like to say that better. Matthew 1.6, King Solomon was born as a result of King David and Bathsheba's adultery, and not to mention David's murder of his own soldier to cover up this affair. Um, not to mention all the men and women, men and women, both who lied, some murdered, were faithless, and so on and so on. But all these people were in the line of the descendants that eventually gave rise to Jesus Christ. So, tell me again why you believe, anybody here watching on the live stream, why you think God can't bless you. Make your case to me, because I'm not going to buy it, why God won't bless you, right? Tell me again why you can't be used by God. So when you start to look at this, you realize that we come to God as we are, hopeless sinners, but he molds us and shapes us into the people he needs us to be. Amen? It says that God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. The proud who come to God and, you, you know, I'm so accomplished. And, and Jesus showed us this in, in the religious system of the first century. You could probably see it today. Um, just the attitude of, you know, I'm perfect, God. You need to use me. And God often doesn't use people like that. He uses those who are coming to him in humility, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector. And he'll lift them up. He'll get them to the place that they need to get to. And it really goes back to God's love for individuals, which, which he loves the whole world, the Bible says, but he also can love us and have a relationship with us as individuals. So that translates into a deep relationship. And that's what separates true Christianity from every other religion, where people are working their way to God, but in the truth is that God reached out to us first. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So let's get to the two verses prior. It says, when all the people were baptized, so the genealogy comes first because I like chronology. I'm just that type of person. Um, Genealogy gives rise to Jesus. We see Jesus in his childhood. We went through some of this, his tween years, um, little glimpse and pieces. And then... He's, he's probably around 30 years old, and this happens. When all the people were baptized, remember John the Baptist was doing all these baptisms? It came to pass that Jesus was also baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So, We see two out of six is the baptism of Jesus, which is very different than the baptism that we read prior of John the Baptist. And again, just like Jesus Christ, Christ is his title, not his last name. John's last name was not the Baptist. It's how we know him because that was really what he did. That was the main staple of his ministry. Uh, So let's look at this in a parallel gospel. I love doing this because... You know, Luke is like, listen, I need you to see this from this perspective, which is great. And then Matthew is like, I'm going to write about the life of Jesus, same events, 
but he uses different details, and so does John, depending on the group that they're trying to reach. Matthew's like, Luke, you go ahead, reach the secular humanists. I got to reach the Jews and make sure they know that this is the Messiah. So the Gospels, there's a lot of connection, 90% connection, and maybe 10% of details that one writer puts in over another based on the audience he's trying to reach. And we, we talked about this when I did the foundation of this book. So Matthew 3, Matthew 3, starting with verse 13, it says, Matthew says, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan. So he gives a little more detail to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, tried to prevent Jesus because he knew who Jesus was. Why, why would I baptize you? You know, this position of honor. He says, I have need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? John was a little confused. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So John is saying, rightly so, I'm not worthy. And why are you, you know, I've been baptizing a bunch of sinners to repent. Why would I ever baptize you? And Jesus is like, just follow the instructions. I'll explain it to you later. So what you see here is one step in a series of steps where Jesus identifies with sinners. Now, Jesus is not a sinner. He's God the Son in human form. But starting with baptism and ending at the cross, had Jesus had to come in the form of sinful flesh in order to save sinful flesh. And he had to, well, he wanted to identify. I'm with you, right? I'm going to read one more scripture and then go back to the idea of identity. So John 129, a little bit different detail. He says that the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, so there's a little bit more here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes this away the sin of the world. So John was asked, he's pretty wild looking. He comes out from the desert. He starts preaching heavy stuff and people are like, are you the one? Are you the one we're supposed to be looking for? Because all the prophecy said it would happen in that time period. And John's like, no, there's one coming that I can't even untie a sandal strap. That's how amazing he is, how great he is. So John, he sees Jesus. He recognized him by, by the Holy Spirit. And he tells everybody that's the one, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not. Now, it's funny because because John was born first. There's a little little nuance in there. He was before me. See, Jesus didn't come for the first time as a babe in a manger. He was always God, the son. He only came as a babe in the manger when he took the form of a human being. So John knows by the Holy Spirit I might have been born first, but he's, he's before me. He's from eternity. Micah 5, 2 tells us that. Powerful stuff. Verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit de- descending, God the, God the Holy Spirit, from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. 
I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Two verses. (laughs) Two verses, right? The word identity, identify, that's a big word today in American culture. Especially, sadly enough, among young people, they're bombarded with all these images and and theories and um, things in school and things on TV and the media and pop culture. And a lot of young people grow up and they don't even know what their identity is. They don't know. And I'm not I'm not being funny. I'm being serious. They're not sure if they want to identify with a male or a female, with a particular race, with a particular uh, political party. Nobody knows what to do today. There's so much confusion, confusion. So identity is a very powerful thing especially for young people because they're starting their life. So they want to know, as I go forward in life, who am I? You know what Jesus did? He identified with sinners. He doesn't care what race you are. He doesn't care what language you speak. He doesn't care where you were born. He doesn't care how you messed up your life. And I don't say that flippantly. What I mean is that he wants to identify with you. That's amazing. God the Son came to identify with me. So when I leave this pulpit and I look in the mirror and I think of identity and I think of all the things I could identify with, I want to identify with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Because I tell you what, all this stuff is causing confusion. It's causing division. But when you identify with the Son of God, that's a big tent. Because the person sitting next to you, who's your brother or sister, could be a male or a female, could be black, could be white, could be anything. It doesn't matter because now you're now brothers and sisters because Christ says that's the way that that's supposed to be. Now, if the world would just get this, there wouldn't be so many problems in the world and in our culture. There wouldn't be nations fighting against nations. There wouldn't be people, you know what I'm saying? This is just simple stuff. But the world says, and I'm paraphrasing, we're going to go the secular humanist route. Chris, Christianity's past say we don't care. We're going to go this way. And that's why we have so many problems in our country and in our world. You keep pushing the Prince of Peace out, you're going to have less peace. Amen? It's a simple equation. So identity is a very powerful word in our culture. And I love the way God capitalizes on it. And he says, I'm going to take this in a different direction. So I don't care who you are. You're in this church, your background, how you look, whatever. You and I, we're simpatico. We're both in Christ. Uh, Three out of six is what's the significance of baptism? Well, baptism is actually a transliterated word, which means when it comes from the Greek, it, um, uh, baptizo, it, what it does is it sounds very similar in the English. So that's what, that's what's called a transliterated word. It's not really translated. It's literally in its form brought to another language. So what does baptism mean? It means to submerge. I'm going to submerge that phone in the water. Right? <laughs> it, please turn your cell phones off. <laughs> it means to whelm. It's symbolic. A little history. The Jews would baptize Gentile converts prior to this, to them, Gentiles finding the true God. So um, before Jesus, before John the Baptist, the way the culture was, Greco-Roman comes to the Jews and says, listen, I don't believe in my pantheon. Um, I want to follow the one true God. And they would take them to, they would do a baptism. 
So it's symbolic. The water wasn't magical. It didn't do anything. It didn't change their mind. It didn't make them perfect. But there was symbolism there. Also, the priests would baptize before they would start their careers as priests. And I'm going to get back to this with Jesus. There were various baptisms and mikvahs and ceremonial baths that symbolized various things. But in a nutshell, baptism is three things. Those three things, one, are an outward display of what's inside. So, as a baby, I believe they did it against my will. I was probably screaming. They baptized me. Um, So when I got into my 20s and really became a believer in Christ, I wanted to be baptized, and I got baptized in the ocean, and I was very happy about it. So, and I think we even took pictures. But what I wanted to do was show the world or the people there or, or the Lord that what I'm doing is an outward display of what's inside. Two, it's an identity Who am I? I'm identifying with Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus identified with sinners back here. So when he died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, when we baptize, we look back and identify with him. So Jesus looked forward to identifying with us. And at this point of of human history, we look back and, and say, when I get baptized, it's saying I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. Pretty neat stuff. And then three, it's symbolism, and we're going to talk about that as well. So, what did we see the last time that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance? So, you know that that's not what's happening here, right? Remember, we talked about transitions. John the Baptist was a transitional figure, okay? So, uh, a lot's going on here. I would just say that God went through a lot of planning to save us, right? And I know the exciting parts of the gospel is him walking on water and raising the dead. But boy, it is so important that we have this foundational teaching. Now, some of you might say, wow, there's a lot to digest here. Please send me an email, write me a note. I'll answer your questions for you because it's really that important. And I think even with baptism, a lot of denominations do it differently. So people like, I'm confused. Should we do it as baby? Should we do it as an adult? Should we get sprinkled? Should we be immersed? And honestly, the scripture has all the answers for that. Looking at this number four out of six, what is the significance of this inaugural baptism of Jesus, right? This, it's a big word, inauguration. Jesus is publicly coming out and starting his ministry. So John precedes him, uh, and then Jesus gets baptized with him. You see the Father, Son, Holy Spirit all in the same place. What is the significance? Well, in the Old Testament, in Numbers 4, 2 through 3, the priests started their ministry at about 30 years old. So then the question is, so was Jesus a priest? Well, what we do know is that Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews, was, you could say, well, he actually was, maybe not with the garb and everything, but symbolically and spiritually, he was the ultimate high priest. Because what did the priest do? The priest would officiate the sacrifices so people's sins at least could be covered Right? What Jesus did as the high priest, he offered himself. So Jesus was not only the high priest offering the sacrifice, but Jesus also was the sacrifice, hence the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. Stunning, isn't it? That's why I'm amazed when men come around or uh, they say, oh, yeah, this guy uh, 10 years ago, he, he was the Messiah. Are you kidding me? He couldn't hold a candle to Jesus Christ. First of all, we know that the scripture tells us that it had to happen in the first century. So anybody coming after that, according to the scripture, is a false, a false uh, messiah. 
And second of all, you can, that, that becomes cultish, right? David Koresh and a lot of these groups where, where they look at this guy, and it's so sad because they don't know their Bibles. Somebody comes around, they're a charismatic figure. When was charis, charismania a precursor to messiahship? It even tells us in Isaiah, did you know this, that everybody knows this? That in Isaiah, it tells us that when he comes, he will have no form or comeliness that we will desire him. God the Son didn't come to be a gorgeous GQ model. That's what we do in America. That's stupid. That, you know, what was more important was who he was inside, his deity. So he might not have been attractive at all. Does that bother anybody? You know, oh, I got to take my picture down over the kitchen. You know, he's so beautiful. I got to put this in the corner. I don't care what you do with that picture. I'm just, tr- I'm just saying that the inside is more important. Everybody has a different picture of what Jesus looked like. But, and they're all good looking. <laughs> so, you know, they're probably all wrong. <laughs> just saying. Nobody's mad at me with that one. Uh, B is that he came to fulfill all things. What also did Jesus do when he was being baptized, right? So they're asking John, are you the Messiah? Like, you're like, so you're a powerful figure, you know. Um, And he wasn't, he didn't come like GQ either. He came looking like a wild man. He had these, uh, like this leather belt and he's eating locusts and honey and, his hair, he probably had never cut his hair. And so he was probably something to behold. So the people were asking, are you the one? And he said, no. And he said, but he is. But what did Jesus do by having John baptize him? He identifies with John's ministry. So the Messiah is coming and saying, that guy is not me, but he came according to the scripture to usher me into this world in, in a figurative sense. It's just heavy stuff here. I was going to take more scripture with this, but I'm like, you know what? These two verses, there's a lot in here. Um, And five is Jesus's baptism and the Trinity. So many places in the Bible, we see God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. We're going to see this, you know, we're going to see this when, when Christ is praying in the garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see this to an extent in the transfiguration and we're going to see here so i have to make sure you understand that god the father god the son god the holy spirit that's proper doctrine right the trinity and isn't it interesting that he made us i'm joe but i have a a physical body that operates differently talk to any really good psychiatrist or psychotherapist They're not really sure where the mind fits in, even with the brain. There is a connection, but it almost seems like it's outside of it. So you you have your mind, you have your body, and you have your spirit. So we're trichotomous beings. We don't always agree with ourselves. I'll tell you that firsthand. You ever argue with yourself? Um, What are you doing? It's okay. It's actually quite normal to do that. Um, Just saying. But, you know, so the Father, Son, Holy Spirit... He made people, men and women, in his image. And there's a a lot of ways how we love, how we interact, and really the trichotomous nature of who we are. So there's a lot going on here. I just have to say this because I have to cover it. And, you know, when I go through the scripture, if we're talking about good doctrine, I also have to talk about bad doctrine. And a lot of bad doctrine arose at the time of Christ and it was easily debunked through the scripture and the founding documents and witnesses and even Roman history. But there is a, uh, it's a false doctrine called modalism. Modalism is where God 
right, takes three different shapes when he feels like it. Sort of like the weird kind of, you know, shapeshifter type of thing in movies and stuff like that. So God the Father is God the Father, and then sometimes he vacates that whatever to become God the Son, and then he vacates that to become... He just keeps changing, like a person changes into a werewolf or something. That's not the Trinity. That's called modalism. Here's where that becomes a problem. And this is where people have trouble defending their faith if they believe something that's not true. And, and they get stumped. So when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, before the crucifixion, and he's communing with God the Father, if you're a modalist, well, you know Jesus, God is in the form of Jesus, but there's nobody on the other end of the phone line. Because the modalist says he can only be in one place at one time. Um, so then that makes the, the scripture disingenuous. Then you can pick apart the scripture, but that's not what we believe. There are some famous people that are modalists, and I'm probably going to get some people upset with me. But it's important for you to know it, because if the foundation is off, the teaching is going to be off. Now, I say this not to attack anybody, but to pray for them to come to the right conclusion. So T.D. Jakes is a famous author of Christian books. He's a modalist. It's also known today as oneness Pentecostalism. Sadly enough, because I think he's a great guy and very nice, and I think he's well-meaning. Stephen Furtick um, studied from T.D. Jakes. You may know him. He's a, you know, a very famous type of preacher. Um, he's a modalist. Very interesting. I have a screenshot of Stephen Furtick's Twitter feed when he started coming out with some of this weird stuff that his own followers who love him said, whoa, bro, that's modalism, you know, and a lot of people jumped on it and Furtick did not respond to it. So that's good that his followers are reading the scripture. Um, but those people need to be prayed for because, again, if their foundation is off, their teaching is off, and they're going to deceive people maybe unwittingly. So six out of six, the last part is additional discussion of baptism. We saw John's baptism. We saw Christ's baptiz baptism. We talked about, we're going to talk about our baptism, and we also sort of see this uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? And you saw that in the book of Acts where the, the Holy Spirit kind of descends on the followers and there's a, a physical manifestation. And you start to see the 2 Corinthians 1, you understand the sealing of the Holy Spirit, right? that happens. So it's almost like Jesus baptizes his followers with God, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is always with us, which is pretty neat when you become a Christian. Let's look at three parts of why we get baptized. Number one, why do we get baptized? Romans 6, 3. We identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So when we're baptized, person dunks us, right? The burial, and then we come out of the water signifying or identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Two, it's illustrative of regeneration. Titus 3, 5. Now, I have to be careful with my words. The, it, it illustrates or it symbolizes the washing away of our sins. So, if you come to the Lord today and you get baptized in a few weeks and you're hoping that when you come out of the water, you're never going to do anything wrong again, I hate to burst your bubble, but that's not going to happen. So when you come out of the water, you know, it is symbolic of your sins being washed away. Now, we're going to see with the temptation of Christ, Christ teaches us how to resist temptation. He gives us the tools that we need, but the water is not magic water, okay? Everybody uses a different water source. Some people use city water. Some people use spring water, but it isn't the water that's doing it. It's the fact that you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Three. 
Romans 6, 6. So all these layers of what baptism is supposed to do. We, des- it desires, we desire symbolically to bury the old sinful life, or what we call the old man, and put on a new resurrected life. Right. So it's actually, you know, we, we always have people say a few words. Um, we give them a certificate. It's just a really powerful ceremony. Um, somebody brought to my, well, taking it all together, it's an outward expression of the inward heart. Now, just to throw a little, a little, you know, caveat or sidebar here is that there's also what's known as, remember, it's symbolic. Okay. It's identifying. In Matthew 20, there's a situation. It's also, I think, repeated in Luke and Mark where there's this thing where, you know, the disciples are following Jesus for a while. And you know how men and women are, right, in the world. Well, maybe I could get promoted. Well, maybe I could be a general. Well, maybe when you come as the conquering Messiah, I'll be one of your lieutenants, whatever. So they're kind of James and John are posturing their mothers involved. They get their mother involved. And uh, (laughs) they want to sit on Jesus's right hand and his left hand. You know the story. And he said, it's not mine to give. You know, basically, we'll see what happens. But that's a bold statement that you're making. Jesus is basically telling them. But what he does say is, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they go, oh, yeah, sure, Jesus. Right? Just talking quickly, impulsivity. They didn't totally get it. What Jesus was telling them is that there was a baptism of righteous sufferings. So Jesus, figuratively, when he went to the cross, the Romans didn't put him in water, but he looked at the sufferings, the righteous sufferings for a good cause to be seen as sort of a symbolic baptism. Now, again, John and James did, Jesus said, oh, you will be baptized with that baptism. And they had no idea what he was talking about, but... They both went through difficult times when Jesus was ascended and the Romans started to clamp down on Christianity. So they did go through that figurative baptism of sufferings. And I could give you a whole bunch of examples, but I won't right now. Um, but it's, it's an interesting thing to look at, isn't it? So one of my elders' wives gave me, um, she was referencing an article about, and, and again, every dom- denomination does things differently. So there was a priest who um, baptized all these little kids and he, he said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You can get the article online. And it became a big deal because it went up the chain of command. And they said, we have to nullify all of your baptisms because you were supposed to say we, meaning the priest and the church. This is why people have a problem with religion. So now all these poor little kids and their families are like, oh, my goodness, He's 14 now, and they're nullifying his baptism. Well, do it again, you know what I'm saying? But the efficacy of baptism is not based on the baptizer, but the baptizee. And what that means in English is, if you say, you could have your, you know, you can have, it doesn't have to be a pastor. You can be baptized by somebody in the persecuted church in North Korea, China, and some of these places. They're being baptized in actually filthy like rivers and waters because it's illegal for them to do this. It doesn't matter how dirty the water is. They are symbolically saying, I identify with Jesus Christ. So it's incumbent upon the person who's actually being, and people ask me, well, does this church, will you baptize kids? I'm like, sure. Listen, I don't expect the five-year-old to be a theology major, but if the the five-year-old can tell me basically in his understanding why he wants to be baptized, I'm going to do it. And I've done it. And it's amazing. We... We sometimes in our culture, we dumb down kids. 
they understand a lot more than we realize. When you look at childhood development, kids are very bright. If there's anything holding back them back, it's sometimes the adults. They can do incredible things, little children. And I'm still amazed in this church when, when, I, when I go down and I teach the kids um, at the last Sunday of the month. They just blow me away. There's, so I don't dumb them down. This church doesn't dumb them down. And we should never dumb our kids down. Let them rise to the level of understanding they need to be at. But don't hold them down. So we've got to so, say, all right, so this is when, this, when the sign-up comes up, oh, my fi- John, Johnny is my five-year-old. Sign him up. Does he know why he's going in the water? Let's do it. Love it. Pretty neat stuff, isn't it? Okay. Take a breath. Okay. <laughs> a lot of stuff here. Um, at this point in Luke's gospel, when we see the temptation of, of Christ in Luke 4, which is phenomenal, and multiple Old Testament prophecies up to this point, we will have solidified the foundation of everything that comes after this. Well, why did Jesus raise the dead? Well, why did he walk on water? Well, why did he, why did he, why did he? This is the foundation that we're building so we understand the rest of the gospel. That's why it's here. Um, We went through prophecy, which happened before he even came to the earth, hundreds of years, sometimes thousands, that spoke about what he was going to do, his mannerisms, what he looked like. I went through that. Um, his genealogy, which got him to that point because genealogies were very important in those days and they proved are you really part of this family or not. That was important for the priesthood and many other things. So we got prophecy, genealogy. We see the uh, manifestations of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that all through the Gospels. We looked at his inaugural baptism and that's important. That's important. So we understand why we believe what we believe. So if the last few months of, the teach, of teaching Luke's gospel right here was a movie, if it was a movie, we just finished the 40 minutes of all the background. <laughs> what we're going to come to is the action part. So we don't want to put the cart before the horse, but this is going to be great. The se- next several months in studying this is going to be awesome. My goal as a teacher is to bring a person who maybe is a nominal believer, maybe they're part of a religion, but they don't really, honestly, they don't pray, they don't walk with God, but they desire something more, is to bring people to Christ. In addition, is to take people who are already Christians and help to strengthen their faith so that when they do have these meetings with their friends or peer groups and all of a sudden they get a question out of left field, they know how to answer the question. Um, Strengthen the faith that's already in them. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.